Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Bryony. And I'm Patricia, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in December in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you are using a star app on your phone, then really make sure you switch on to the red night vision mode. It's December, which means it's the month of the shortest day of the year for those living in the Northern Hemisphere, otherwise known as the winter solstice. This year, the winter solstice will fall on Monday 21st December. While we typically celebrate the winter solstice for the entire day, the phrase winter solstice actually refers to a very specific moment in time, this year falling at 10.03 a.m. GMT. Solstice comes from the Latin morphemes sol, sun, and stitium, to stop. So the solstice occurs when the sun appears to stop in the sky. Relative to a stationary observer on the Earth, the sun is always moving from east to west. And as well as this east to west movement, we also see some north to south movement. And it is this movement in declination that pauses at the moment of the solstice. This slight pause isn't visible to us on Earth, even if we could look at the sun safely, but that doesn't mean it's not worth noting. While it will still be cold for a while, the days will start to grow longer and you'll be waking up to sunlight soon enough. The winter solstice isn't the only exciting thing to be happening on the 21st of December. In the early evening, Jupiter and Saturn will be so close together in the sky, only about 0.1 of a degree apart that instead of seeing two separate points of light, we may actually only be able to make out one very bright point. Now, when this happens between any other two astronomical objects, it is called a conjunction. But because of the sort of historical and, and cultural importance that people have placed on Jupiter and Saturn, when they appear close together in the sky, it is called a great conjunction. Great conjunctions occur about once every 20 years, but this year, Saturn and Jupiter will be much closer than usual. Closer, in fact, than they have been in almost 400 years. So for those of us in the UK, if you want to see the Great Conjunction, look to the southwestern horizon just after the sun sets on the 21st of December, and you should be able to see the bright light that will be Saturn and Jupiter. The planets will be set by around 6pm, so you'll only have an hour or two to spot them before this year's Great Conjunction disappears from our view. Moon watchers will have to wait until the end of December to see this month's full moon, often called the cold moon because of its proximity to the winter solstice. Depending on how precise you want to get, the full moon will fall on the 29th or 30th of December. We say this because the syzygy of the Sun-Earth-Moon system will occur at around 3.30 a.m. GMT on the 30th of December. The syzygy of the Sun-Earth-Moon system is the time when the three bodies are in a straight line, in this case with the Earth positioned between the Sun and the Moon. But for all our UK listeners, just because the syzygy isn't until 3.30 a.m. on December 30th, 
that doesn't mean that the moon won't look spectacular and full the evening of the 29th. With moonrise occurring not long after 4 p.m., you'll have all evening to watch the moon. So we recommend making most of the festive season and spending some time looking to the heavens. And for all the Scrabble players out there, Syzygy is a great word to earn you some mega points. Now from the closest object to the Earth to one of the furthest away, the dark winter skies give us a great opportunity to spot our nearest galaxy, Andromeda. Those of you without telescopes will need to head far away from civilization and its light pollution to get even a glimpse of the smudge in the sky that is Andromeda. But if you've got a telescope, you should be able to find it if you just head to a sort of relatively dark open space. Now, the Andromeda galaxy can be found predictably in the constellation of Andromeda, but you may find it easier to locate Andromeda by either starting from the constellation of Cassiopeia or right now by starting from the planet Mars. Check out our night sky highlights blog, which we will link in the podcast description for full directions. December also holds one of the best meteor showers of the year, the Geminids, peaking on the evening of the 13th of December, right before the new moon, we should have a wonderfully dark sky to observe the shower, of course, weather permitting. As the name suggests, the Geminids appear to originate from the constellation of Gemini, near one of the bright twin stars, the star Castor. The Geminids are a little different from other meteor showers. Most meteor showers come from comets, but the Geminids arrive thanks to asteroid 3200 Phaeton. A Phaeton passes closer to the sun than any other named asteroid, and it is for this reason that it was named Phaeton, after the son of the Greek god Helios. This meteor shower will be best viewed from the northern hemisphere, but those in the southern hemisphere should still look out for it. The Geminids will peak at about 2 a.m. local time wherever you are in the world, but you should still be able to see a pretty great show earlier in the evening. At its peak, the Geminids may have as many as 100 meteors per hour, so this is definitely one to watch. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, the Geminids aren't the last meteor shower of the year. That honor goes to the Ursids, which won't peak until around the winter solstice. The Ursids appear to originate from Ursa Major, near the asterism of the Plough, or also known as the Big Dipper. These are a much quieter affair than the Geminids, peaking at only about 10 meteors per hour, and they'll only be visible for the true night owls. The Ursid meteor shower doesn't start until about 1 in the morning. The Geminids also don't peak until after midnight, but you should still be able to see quite a few meteors in the evening. Whether you're wanting to watch the Geminids or the Ursids, watching meteor showers requires dark skies, so any listeners who are city dwellers may want to consider a camping trip to the countryside, depending, of course, on restrictions in your local area. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog, as we said earlier. You can find that on our website, rmg.co.uk or in the link in the podcast description. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. So every month uh, we pick a story that's broken recently in astronomy or space exploration and then we talk to you about it. Now for some time 
you have been hearing the voice of Dara because Dara has brilliantly been running the podcast, I suppose, single-handedly in a sense since March. And then we had the brilliant Briny join Dara for last month's podcast. And now I can say I'm back. back. I'm back. Yay! And it feels so weird to be back. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a strange thing, but I'm so happy that we figured out how to do it. I can't believe it took us this long to figure it out, <laughs> but I'm delighted to be back. And in case anyone's wondering, Dara is in a slightly different role at the moment, and she'll be in that role for a couple of months, but it means I get to do a whole bunch of podcasts with Bryony. And I'm very excited about that because Bryony, I'm sure people can tell from our accents, neither one of us is originally from the Northern Hemisphere. That is very true. It's nice to have a fellow Southern Hemisphere, Fearite? I don't know what the word is, but you know. I was, okay. was going to say Hemispherian. Yeah, uh, I but think it works the best, yeah. yeah. I, potentially, but it's really nice. And so I think what's uh, something for me about moving to the Northern Hemisphere uh, it's getting used to a different night sky. It's not what we grew yeah. up seeing. And so for us, uh, learning the night sky has been lots of fun as well. We're still discovering new and wonderful delights as we go along the way. Uh, but Bryony had a little bit of an idea of something we want to do, but we're not going to tell you about it just yet. We'll, we'll have a discussion with you about it later on in our Cosmic News Diary. But of course, we have to talk about wonderful things that we've spotted recently in the news. So I think, Bryony, it makes perfect sense for you to go first and tell us about what interesting story you've picked for this month. All right. Well, Patricia, I think I'm on to a winner with this story. I've been told that there is, you know, there's some competition that goes on between you and Dara as to who manages to pick the, pick the best story. And I think yeah. I, this one, you know, this this one takes a lot of boxes for me. I I I might be slightly jealous, and that's because I believe your story is about my favorite planet in the entire. It is about system. your favorite planet. It is. It is. It is about your favorite planet. It is, of course, and of course, you know, anyone who has ever heard Patricia talk about space probably knows what her favorite planet is and that is the planet Mars. Now, of course, I, you know, I love Mars as well. Who doesn't love Mars? Um, but this, this particular news is actually really, really exciting. It actually, it was a, uh, it's off the back of a paper that was published um, in the journal Science just a couple of weeks ago. And it's looking at maybe ways that water might have escaped from Mars. Now, you see, the thing about Mars is we, you know, we have evidence that in the past there was you know, flowing water. We have evidence that there were once rivers, um, you know, just by looking at the rocks, which is, I mean, you know, I'm not a geologist, but it amazes me what geologists can do just by looking at like Martian rocks and seeing these sort of little pebbles embedded in bits. And it's, it's honestly quite amazing. So we know there was once water there, but the question is, where is it gone? Um, you know, uh, and you know, not just where is it gone, but also how much was there? And those two questions can actually sort of be answered, sort of, they sort of tie in together. Because of course, if we know, if we have a model of how fast the water could leave Mars, then we can sort of work backwards as to how much water that was there. Now, um, sort of base, base facts, well, you know, why, like what happened to the water on Mars? Like, you know, why didn't it just remain there? Like we have water on earth. And that is because of Mars's atmosphere. Mars's atmosphere is a lot thinner than ours, like real, real depressingly thin. And so because of that, you end up with a lot more um, like 
uh, evaporation. Uh, you don't get the associated condensation that we get here on Earth. Um, and of course, there's other sort of biological processes that also work in with that that we haven't yet found on Mars. Um, but those bits are not so much, you know, what I, I want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about what this, this is a graduate student from the University of Arizona who has discovered this, has made this discovery. So like props, props to him. I was just going to say that is, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do it. That's worthy of a round of applause yeah. because I mean, for graduate students to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so props to Stone. Surely, he, I mean, I'm sure he's soon to be Dr. Stone if he's not already, you know, offers a bit of a lag when these papers come out. Um, this is truly an amazing thing. So what he was doing is he was studying, um, you know, the data from a MAVEN, which is, let me just get this acronym correct, the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Spacecraft, abbreviated to MAVEN. And it's an orbiter. And what it does is it actually dips into Mars's atmosphere periodically, about once every four and a half hours, if I remember correctly. So it dips, so it's only about 150 kilometers above the surface of Mars. And from that, it has an instrument that then takes measurements of um, you know, of the atmosphere. It sort of like eats it and like, you know, detects what's in there. And so from that, we can see, you know, what this atmosphere is made of when we can detect um, some water. Well, not so much water, we typically detect um, hydrogen. So we detect dissociated hydrogen because um, so far what we thought happened was basically water was evaporated um, from the surface of Mars. What happened is the oxygen kind of got, got caught up a little bit lower down and the hydrogen floated up into the upper atmosphere, which is where Maven would eat it and be like, hey, I found some hydrogen. Now it was thought that this was just driven by sort of radiation. It wasn't, it wasn't thought that there was anything um, particularly seasonal about it, but this raised a massive problem because you see what Maven has been discovering is that you know, the amount of hydrogen that it detects is very seasonal. During hot weather, it, you know, it picks up a, like, quite a lot. I think now, that's an interesting point that you raise there, Bryony, yeah. because uh, sometimes I think when we think about planets in our solar system, we, when we think of seasons, we just think of Earth. We don't realize that other planets do experience seasons, and, and exactly. Mars does have seasons too. very much has seasons yeah it can get up to 20 degrees at the equator during summer that's that's pretty impre we, well it's impressive but we won't tell people what the average surface temperature is on mars Let, no, let's we just won't, we won't tell them that that'll that'll no, ruin no. the tourist brochures yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah so you know mars does have these seasons um and the problem was though the amount of variation didn't match up with like with variation that like due to um, increased temperatures uh, and so, you know, because you would think, oh, yeah, of course, like, yeah, seasonal variation, of course, the hotter it is, the more water you know, evaporates, but it didn't match up. It, it just didn't make sense. It wasn't able to account for it. These increased temperatures just didn't work. But then this um, graduate student, he was uh, looking through the data from one of the last global dust storms, and he discovered that during this dust storm, the hydrogen also spiked. In fact, it spiked to levels higher than it was like during the usual Martian summer. And then, then he managed to get data from Maven during a dust storm, not during, not during um, just, just during a local one and also detected the same increase. And so interestingly enough from, you know, then of course, like he went away and did you know, crazy amounts of modeling along with his whole team and every, you know, everyone fed into this. But what they've come out with is that yes, actually it is the dust storms on Mars that are a pretty huge driver in the evaporation process, which is 
That's crazy, interesting. You wouldn't think like, yeah. oh, these dust storms, that's creating, you know, that actually helps lift the water. So one thing that they suggest with the local dust storms, what, um, what could be, well, what they think could be happening is that basically this dust cover, it, you know, causes a slight local heating that then as that sort of water starts to feed, you know, like as it starts to, you know, dissociate and the hydrogen starts to sort of heat up, then because of this sort of kind of sort of like gaseous imbalance, then what happens is that sort of pushes more dust down and it drives more for like more forceful dust storms because you have these this extra this gas moving around higher up because of course that's what causes you know change in the atmosphere it's all about how the gas is moving and so they think that actually it's this interesting feed positive feedback process where as it's you know as these you know these small dust storms you know, they start to evaporate some water and you know, start to drive as well, like, you know, not just evaporation, but other, you know, sort of chemical processes. Uh, it drives this, um, this you know, push of the water into the atmosphere that then positively feeds back and creates, you know, makes the dust storm more intense that then pushes more up, which is really fascinating, I think. Um, I think it's really exciting as well that they've, they've been able to get this data. You know, they first had some, they had some data from one of the previous global dust storms in 2007. Um, that's you know it's sort of there was some data that suggested this but they're sort of it wasn't quite conclusive enough but now we have maven um you know this orbiter that is able to literally yeah. dip into the atmosphere and you know eat some of the atmosphere and see what's in it and they've managed to have it dip through during global dust storms and local dust storms they can now say well we've got enough data to say that actually these dust storms do correlate and not just correlate but feed back into more um, water because they detected over the course of the dust storm an increase in hydrogen so it's not just that oh they're there you know, it's more hydrogen during the dust storm it's that as the storm went on they detected more and more hydrogen which is amazing and actually they found that this could explain um th this could suggest that the um you know the mars once had a global ocean that was as deep as like several meters that's amazing is, because uh, if we if we look at all the work that's taken place so far in terms of our exploration of Mars, if we look at, I mean, not just things that have been seen by the orbiting spacecraft, but if we really look at the pioneering work of all these landers that we've sent and all the rovers and that, they were, we're seeing evidence everywhere that water once flowed on Mars. And definitely if we're looking at the models now, they are saying that Mars, as you said, once had oceans uh, across yeah. the entire globe. So it's I know it's really hard to think about Mars looking like that because of all the images that we see now, because obviously we look at Mars and it's barren, Very, yeah. dry, it's, it's rocky, but... Really desert world. Yeah, and, and so the fact that we're able to kind of get this good idea of what Mars once looked like based on what it looks like now, but using all these features, it's just, it's really impressive. And I think it highlights again the importance of sending spacecraft there. I know a lot of people always ask us the question, why Why do we keep sending spacecraft there? This is why we do it, because it allows us to answer these big questions. And not just that, but this is also telling us more just about atmospheric dynamics. Well, you know, this paper wasn't specifically looking at it for, you know, Earth, but you know, the more we know about how atmospheres other than our own work, the more we can see, well, can we apply this to our own? Like, what do we know? What can we learn? Uh, and, you know, this is, it's, it really is important, I think, to be studying alien geology and alien climates as well as our own climate. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a really great point to raise as well. And also tying into uh, geology, as you, were st- as you stated earlier on, is that we look at our home planet, the Earth, and we see how water has influenced the surface, how it's changed the surface, how it's marked the surface. And we use that to infer uh, the same things that happened on Mars because we're seeing geologically similar features. And that's, it's, it's just really nice so that you can use one planet to study another. And that, as you've just said now, we can now use Mars to help us better understand the Earth, which I, I think that's truly brilliant. Yeah, I, I really, I really do agree. I think it's, it really is amazing. It, it really is. It's a really, it's a really, really cool paper. I would, um, I'd recommend reading. And there's also, if not the paper itself, also reading, um, you know, some of the articles that have been written about it, because it's, it's really, really interesting. I think I'll, I'll include a link to the, um, the paper in the podcast description uh, as well, for those of you yeah. who are able to and- Again, a big, like I said, kudos to the graduate students for for doing that. I wish when I was a student starting to do some bits of research that I could have made some really great discoveries about this, but maybe, maybe I should have picked Mars. I mean, as you know, I'm, I am obsessed with that planet. You should have picked, you should should have picked Mars to study as a, uh, as as, as a graduate student, get yourself a a first author paper in science. Um, That's, you know, for those of you who may not be um, scientists, um, you know, um, when you, you know, publish papers, obviously it's you know, very important. Um, where you publish them is even more important, but also where you appear on the author list is yeah. very, very important as well. And so this, you know, this guy's got a first author paper in science for something that is fascinating, not just to scientists, but to everyone. So honestly, kudos to him. And I, uh, uh, I hope he keeps studying this sort of thing because I want to see more. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm really excited. And also just shows you the amazing science we're getting from Maven as well. So again, another brilliant spacecraft in orbit at Mars. Mm. Oh, I think that, well, that was a, a very interesting story. Thank you so much, Bryony. No worries. And hit me with your best one now. Well, I, I will do that. It has been some time since, I, since I've done one of these stories. So I'm, I'm going to enjoy the moment. And yes. I am going to be sticking inside the solar system. So for, so that's the theme this month is we're actually not, neither one of us has left our solar system. We're all staying within the solar system. But Bryony, I'm pretty confident that you um, and probably most of, if not all of our listeners has either had or possibly has glow in the dark stickers or perhaps even a glow in the dark ball. I mean, they're always loads of fun charging them up under a light and then switching all the lights off to watch and then so you can watch them glow of course with the a glow in the dark ball for instance your, the material that it's made from absorbs a particular wavelength or color of light that uh, adds energy to the system and then of course that energy is released in the form of a different color or wavelength of light well based on some recent research Scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory have found what could be the largest glow-in-the-dark ball in the solar system. Although what? we have to ignore the sun. Okay, so we have to throw the sun out because the sun would always win. As well, a, that's as not glow-in-the-dark ball. ball. That's creating its own stuff. So, I mean, yes. you know. So, so we will ignore that. But, um, yes, so scientists think that Europa, a moon of Jupiter, might just glow in the dark. That's cool. And it's, it is cool, but it's also weird, isn't it? Yeah. So what is, is it phosphorescent algae? 
I mean, I, I say phosphorescent algae because <laughs> the reason I suggest this is um, because, of course, Europa is uh, water. We, will, we believe it's a sort of water world covered in a thick layer of ice um, and underneath is an ocean. So, of course, I, you know, I, I'm sort of thinking like, well, you know, we'll, we'll find things. Um, we'll, life is, you know, Europa is where we'll find life. So, of course, it must be algae there. But um, maybe that's jumping the gun a little bit there, Patricia. <laughs> Well, Bryony, actually, you've just cut my story too short. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, yeah, so it's it's a really fascinating answer to this question as to why why would we think that Europa glows in the dark? So what we have to do is we have to investigate different aspects to the story. So, of course, we have to start at the planet that Europa orbits, the planet Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter, as everyone knows, is the largest planet in our solar system. And just like the Earth, Jupiter has a magnetic field. But of course, its magnetic field is much larger and far stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. In fact, of all the planets in the solar system, Jupiter's magnetic field is the strongest. So if you, you, know, if you were to compare planets to planets, Jupiter wins sort of on everything, size, magnetic field, um, we would have won on the moon's battle, but as we know, oh, that's not that the case anymore. The post. I, I, I have faith that there are some, you know, Jupiter scientists out there frantically searching for more moons just so they I, can I, I think so. So they, they probably are. They want Jupiter to be sort of king of everything. Yeah. So, but at the moment, it gets it sort of pipped out to the post on the moon count. But anyway, um, now, if you, if you look at the magnetic fields that you find at Jupiter, then if you look at the region around the planet, and this is a region where the magnetic field actually controls that local environment, that entire region is what we call the magnetosphere. So that's a really, really cool name to give something. It kind of, to me, sounds like something that's come out of the X-Men. Um, but that's probably because I'm just thinking of Magneto himself controlling, as we know, all sorts of wonderful things. But now that magnetosphere of Jupiter extends so far out into space. Um, it's something about like, I think it's a hundred times the size of Jupiter itself. So that's how far this magnetosphere extends out into oh space. So when we say the magnetic field at Jupiter is really big, if we're looking at that sphere of influence, then we really do mean it. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah, absolutely enormous. But that magnetosphere is so big that the moons of Jupiter orbit around insider. Yes. So that's something to think about. So you've got this massive magnetosphere and you've got those moons orbiting inside it. Well, because that's now, what causes some, causes some of the heating of Io, isn't it? The, uh, the So yes, yeah, so there is a complex interaction between Io and Jupiter's magnetic field. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. So you do have um, these crazy interactions that happen there. Um, in fact, I think Io itself drives lightning on Jupiter. Yes. So that's, a, that's, I mean, to think about that, how this orbiting moon can cause lightning strikes on a planet. It's, it's completely fascinating. And if I were to start delving into that, we'd be here for a couple of hours. We'll say that for next time. Or as I normally encourage people, uh, have a look at NASA's solar system website. It's, it's really, really good. And you can learn about the moons and all the, um, especially for Jupiter, they've got a really good site on um, Io. Now, what happens if you look at that uh, magnetosphere around Jupiter is that you end up with regions inside it where high, highly charged particles such as, um, or high energy particles such as electrons and protons and heavy ions, they get trapped inside regions in this magnetosphere and they produce things called radiation belts. And some of those charged particles, as you know, comes from the sun because our sun 
is a steady source of charged particles. So we have that flow coming out from the sun. But interestingly, at Jupiter, and you, and you literally just mentioned it, the dominant source of charged particles comes from Io. So Io has got around, um, I think it's 400 odd active volcanoes, and oh they're just God, constantly yeah. spewing out all sorts of material, including charged particles. Now, the Earth has got radiation belts, too. You've probably heard of them, the Van Allen belts. Now, they are dangerous areas of radiation, too. So for the most part, astronauts do not enter those regions. Spacecraft don't enter those regions um, either, for, but for the most part. But sometimes you might have to travel through a radiation belt. It, it can happen. But now, if you think about the fact that I said that the moons are orbiting inside this magnetosphere, well, what that means is those moons are also moving through these regions and moving through some of those radiation belt regions. And so they're moving through these regions, means they're being constantly bombarded by radiation. So that's something to think about. So you've got these moons orbiting within this region, constantly bombarded by radiation. This also explains why when we send spacecraft out to Jupiter, we tend to avoid those regions because radiation can damage the electronics on board spacecraft. So we usually what we do is we heavily shield spacecraft to protect those sensitive electronics. So as an example, Juno, which is the current spacecraft orbiting Jupiter, had a very special radiation vault built for it. It's got titanium walls and all the sensitive electronics are housed inside that vault to protect them because Juno, Juno's orbit takes it very close yeah. to Jupiter and it's taking it through these regions that any other time if you send a spacecraft out there, we go, no, we won't go there today. Or if we do, we just pass it very quickly and don't <laughs> go back kind of, kind of thing. Well, Juno is like not diving right in there. I mean, you know, it's, it's, only, it's only fair, you know, Juno, Jupiter's wife, she's got to check up on him. Yeah, and then the only way to do this is to get up close and personal. So that, exactly. that's exactly what's happening. So we have to protect that spacecraft. Otherwise, it would be really disappointing or upsetting, you can imagine, if you didn't shield it and you fly straight through that and then everything is destroyed. All your beautiful, sensitive electronics just destroyed by really harmful radiation. So Jupiter is the first part to answering that question. So we need to remember it's got a massive magnetosphere and we've got these extreme radiation belts at the moon's are moving through. So that's the first part. Now the second part to answer the question of why Europa might glow in the dark, actually it relates to what you were saying at the beginning, that Europa is an icy moon and that we suspect it has got beneath a crust of ice, a global ocean of salty water. That's very exciting mm -hmm. because I'm sure all our listeners know we are searching for life elsewhere in the solar system. And from based on what we find here on the Earth, we know that wherever we find liquid water, we find some form of life. So there is an argument that possibly there could be life on Europa. So if there is an ocean, there could be life of some form. I think that's something important to emphasize. We're not saying we're going to go out there and find a sort of maybe a human-like no. people living there. Um, I was going to say mermen, but I thought that might be a bit strange. But yeah, um, that, that's a good that's a good point. Um, of course, if anyone knows, astronomers would get really excited if it was a simple bacterium as well. We're, we're not picky. We're not. We're not. And we're, any we're not life picky. is good life. Exactly. 
Now, because of all the spacecraft that we've sent out to Jupiter to explore, they've obviously had a look at the moons as well. And based on observations taken by the spacecraft, well, scientists think that the surface of Europa is made of a mixture of water ice and some salts or salt compounds. And these aren't weird salts. There's some that we have here on the Earth and we use perhaps on a daily basis. So, for example, salts like sodium chloride, table salt, we all use that, and something like uh, magnesium sulfate. Now, that one you might go, oh, what's that? Epsom salt. So, if you've ever been, uh, I know a lot of people, I think, use it for helping with aching muscles. They, yeah, they use Epsom, like Epsom salt. In, uh, in Epsom salts after a long day. Yeah, so that's that's said to help. So these aren't strange salts, and we think those are what you might find mixed in with the water ice out there at Europa. Now, as we know, as Europa is orbiting around Jupiter, we know that that surface is just being bombarded by these charged particles, so all that radiation. Now, if there is definitely a global ocean there at Europa, if there is life, then how would that life respond to those intense blasts of radiation? That's an important question. And that's exactly what scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory wanted to figure out. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, how do you investigate how that intense radiation interacts with Europa when you don't have a spacecraft at Europa? Now, I should point out Juno is a dedicated Jupiter mission. It's, it's not going to, to study the moons in exquisite detail. So how do we study Europa when we're not there? Simple. You build your own Europa. <laughs> All right. That is not where I was expecting that to go. Okay, cool. Well, I say Europa. And by Europa, I mean mini Europa. And by mini Europa, I mean something called the Ice Chamber for Europa's High Energy Electron and Radiation Environment Testing, otherwise known as Ice Heart. So that sounds of quite course, a little. Of course. <laughs> it, it's quite a cute name. So I, I like that. So they built this instrument and they took it to a high energy electron beam facility. So this is amazing. You build an instrument, you're like, we're going to pummel it with radiation. We're going <laughs> to pummel it with, with you know, just charged like particles. You're actually trying to get that through customs as well. I don't know if they had to cross any borders to get through that. But uh, can you imagine just checking that into the airport? But like, be careful with this. This is my ice heart. Uh, yeah, well, man, I was just picturing now everyone sort of rushing through it, it, sort of customs with urgency. There's a heart inside this, this unit, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Europa being out there at the distance that Jupiter is from the sun, you can imagine it's pretty cold. It's quite chilly out at Europa. So what the researchers did, because you're trying to simulate as best you can what the conditions would be like, they froze water ice or water. So they froze that down to about 100 Kelvin. Ooh, that's which chilly. Which is minus 173 degrees Celsius. That's really, really cold. And then what they did was, as you would expect them to do, they blasted that uh, water ice with those um, high energy electrons. But then what they also did was they started to add, uh, create different mixtures. So they mixed in those salts with the water ice so they tried a bit of table salt and they tried a little bit of epsom salt and they mixed up different mixtures now what they knew was going to happen is that those energetic electrons would add energy to the molecules within the ice 
And that when those molecules relax, so if you stop pummeling them with all those electrons, eventually they relax, that energy then gets released and it will be released as photons or as light. And so with the water only sample, they realize that when you stop firing stuff at it, it, it does glow in the dark. So water tries that those temperatures glowed in the dark and apparently it had a quite nice blue-green color. That's so, so, so cool. That's, so, so that's really nice. But the more interesting results came with the mixtures with water and salts, because what they realized was that a table salt and water mixture produced a different color glow compared oh. to a water ice and Epsom salt mixture. So that was the first thing they spotted. That's cool. They also then realized that different ratios of mixtures produce different glows as well. So depending nice. on how much, so for example, if we look at the water ice and table salt mixture, if you start adding a bit more, a bit more salt, a little bit more salt and so on. And then looking at how that glow changed, they, that's when they realized, okay, so the ratios also produce different glows. But in addition to all this, when they started to compare the glows, they realized that if you have a lot of Epsom salts in the mixture, then the observed glow becomes enhanced. It becomes quite obvious. Oh. But if you have a lot of salt in the mixture, then it's a very dull glow. So salt seems to subdue that glow, whereas Epsom salt makes it glow even brighter. So if a mini Europa in a laboratory grow, sort of glows in the dark, then it means then that if you were at Europa and you looked at its nighttime side, the nighttime side would probably glow. And that would also tell you a little bit about what it's made of as well, which I think is the most exciting bit about this whole thing. That is precisely where the story is leading because they've realized, because we don't quite know what the surface of Europa is made from, if we send a spacecraft there and we swing it around to the nighttime side and you look for this glow, you can figure out what is in the ice. You can figure out what salts are in the ice. That is and that amazing. in itself can give you an idea, if there is an ocean, what salts you might find in the ocean, which would then help you determine what kind of life, if any, would have evolved in the oceans of Europa. Now, the good news is, we are planning on sending a spacecraft out to Europa. Oh, yes, of course. The great name, called, another great name as well. It's, well, the Europa Clipper. So, uh, so I mean, it's good. I, I don't know if it's as punchy as I want it to be, but, you know. I was also thinking of, um, of Juice. What, yeah, exactly. The Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. I think... I, I'm not actually sure the status of that mission is. No, At one yeah. point, there were plans to send Europa Clipper and Juice, but as you know, for budgetary constraints, it's really hard sometimes to actually get the funding. But who knows? Maybe we'll end up with both there. But what the scientists at JPL think is that the equipment or the instrumentation that Europa Clipper is being designed with might just be able to detect that glow, which means we might finally have the answer to what is Europa made of, or at least what's that surface made of. The downside though, is we're going to have to wait some time before we can confirm this because Europa Clipper is scheduled at the moment to launch in 2024 and will only arrive at Jupiter in 2028. So there is a bit of a wait. That is but unfortunately it's, true. It's the way these things go. It is the way these things work, uh, go, you're quite right. 
and I, I really do hope that it turns out that Europa does glow in the dark because it would make it the only object that we know about in our entire solar system that does this, that glows in the dark. <laughs> that's so cool. That's, uh, that's so, wow. I mean, Europa has always, it's always been sort of a really interesting bit of an oddball moon, but my goodness, it really just had to knock it out of the park and glow in the dark, didn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't content with just being a potential place for life. It's like, know, right? it just had to, you know, had to too. light up the sky like a disco ball. Yeah. So let's keep fingers crossed that Europa Clipper will head out to Jupiter and answer those questions. So yes, I, I thought that that would be quite a nice story for this month, just because of the fact that it glows in the dark. I yeah. think that's pretty cool as well. I, I think, yeah, that is, that is a cool story. And we'll have to see which one of our stories is the favoured one, I suppose. Exactly. So we, of course, as we do with every uh, Cosmic News part of our podcast, leave it up to you, the listeners, to decide on which your favourite story of the month is. So do look out for that poll, which will pop up in the first week of the month on our Twitter account. So please do have a vote there and let us know which story is your favourite. Uh, but Bryony, I what I'm going to do now, because I'm sure you might be curious as to how the Twitter poll went for last month's podcast. I would so, like I, I haven't looked at it yet. So uh, you I haven't looked at it. Okay. Oh, so this is break, breaking news on your side. So just to remind our listeners, so of course, in last month's podcast, uh, Dara spoke about the recent sample collection made by Osiris Rex from asteroid Bennu. And Brian, you spoke about the Physics Nobel Prize 2020 winner. So to the astrophysicists who did really amazing work on compact objects and black holes. So we had votes come in for that podcast. And I can say that with 67% of the vote, the winner was Dara's Osiris Rex story. I thought I had a winner with black holes. I mean, black holes are really fascinating, but, uh, they, you know, there's something about asteroids and they always get people there that pe- people have a soft spot for asteroids. I think that's completely fair. I mean, they are absolutely fascinating. And I mean, they, the they are indeed to do that, to make that little touch off was incredible. I don't know if anyone's seen it. You probably have, uh, Bryony, the amazing footage that was returned from, from yeah. that sample collection. It's it still blows my mind that we can do that now, that we can send spacecraft out billions of kilometers away from us, millions of kilometers away from us, and we can do amazing science like this. Um, But yeah, so that was the result for last month's uh, Twitter poll. And again, a reminder to please do vote for this month's poll for your favorite story. But now I did mention that Bryony and I are interested in doing something a little bit differently, but we wanted to get you, our listeners, to provide us with that feedback. So Bryony and I, as we said, we're both originally from the Southern Hemisphere. So we're used to the familiar sights of the Southern Hemisphere night sky. And we thought it might be nice to share that with you, our listeners. So we're going to have a second poll up on our Twitter account, and that's to get from you a yay or a nay on whether you'd like us to talk about some Southern Hemisphere objects or constellations that you can look out for, especially if any of our listeners are in the Southern Hemisphere or when things go back to normal and people start traveling worldwide again on holidays, they do find themselves in the Southern Hemisphere. 
they can have a look for these objects. So please do vote on that poll as well. But from us, I think we'll, we've reached the end of this month's podcast and it's really nice to be back and I look forward to our future podcasts uh, together, Bryony. As do and I. I, I, yeah, I have to just say a big thank you again to Dara for doing all of the hard work for a very long time on her own. It was much appreciated, but now we're, we're back and hopefully we'll continue in this platform until we get back on site and then we can record in the same room. So thanks to technology. We're not in the same room, but we can. Do we can now. still we can still record together. We can still be together in some way, Patricia. That's a beautiful sentiment. Yes, yeah, so we can still be together um, in a, in a digital way. Exactly. Just a reminder to everyone that, of course, we have so much on offer. We've got our social media accounts. So do follow us on at ROG Astronomers as well if you don't already do that. Again, have a look at our Night Sky Highlights blog for a lot more information about what you can see up in the night sky. We also now have our Royal Observatory Greenwich YouTube channel, which has a number of videos on it that discuss quite a few topics in astronomy as well. So please do subscribe to that channel. But for now, that's it for this month's Look Up podcast. And we'll be joining you all again very soon. Thank you.